everybody, and welcome to Input 2. I am your host, Emily Rubin, and welcome as we talk about movies. And it is October, which means we talk about my favorite movies, horror movies. So if you like horror, this is the place to be. If you don't, I don't know, come back next month. But really, you should stick around. So with me today, I have the wonderful... Jeremy Rogers. And what do you do here at Bite, Jeremy? Well, Emily, <laughs> since you ask, I am the news editor here at Byte. So basically, you should know everything about everything. Essentially. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. So today's film is actually a really odd one because I think I can safely say that we both acknowledge it's not a good movie, right? That's being very charitable. But we both like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Repo, the genetic opera today. It is a film made in 2008 by Darren Lynn Bozeman. And in case you don't know, Bozeman actually directed like Saw 2, 3, and 4. So this isn't just one of those instances of like a nobody directing a horror film. Granted, I wouldn't say he's a... This is a somebody directing a nothing film. <laughs> I guess, is he, I don't know, Saw, this, like Saw sequels aren't necessarily a top tier though. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's it's something. It's it's better than the Slenderman guy, <laughs> who didn't have anything. Or but, Adam Wingard, yeah. doing Death Note. The point is, he's done something. So good on you, Bozeman. So Repo markets itself as a gothic rock opera. I'm just gonna pause there because for a horror movie, that's that's what caught my attention when I first heard of it. That's so unique. <laughs> On Wikipedia, it's listed as a gothic musical horror comedy film. Oh, I guess it's kind of funny, but I thought it was mostly unintentional. Oh, no, yeah. Every time I laugh, <laughs> it's for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um. So just to give you all kind of an idea of how this movie fared, on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics, sorry, the critics gave it a 36%, where audiences actually gave it a 72%. This is one of those weird examples of like a cult film where in the vein of Rocky Horror, it didn't do well critically, but it's become an underground hit. And it's actually very surreal because I think most people acknowledge this movie's not good, but we all just kind of love it anyway. <laughs> is that a fair assumption? Yeah, yeah. It's got heart. It's got an artificial heart. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> um, so I, this movie isn't terribly unknown, I would say, in the horror community. People have heard of it. Uh, it they do screenings in the, like, in the same way that Rocky Horror does, where the director and writer will come around to theaters. I don't think they have like a spoon thing where like in the room you throw spoons. I don't think they have like a thing that you do. So, I mean, we could try that with needles. That might not go very well. Um, before we get into the plot of this film, I think I always think it's fun to bring up uh, just what other reviewers say about it. Uh, and I like to start with a positive one. And this is one of the few ones that I read that kind of made sense. It's from Ray Bennett from The Hollywood Reporter. And he says, quote, all out thriller with few Bond touches, but plenty of high octane action. <laughs> I, I, I guess, right? Like. Uh Okay. But the the more interesting quotes are the negative ones. Uh, so Ben Mankiewicz from At The Movies, he really... I'll did... take this one. You want... Okay, you want yeah, that one? I'll take Ben Mankiewicz. Uh, quote, I hated this movie. <laughs> and that's it. That's that's all he wrote. Um, so thank you, Ben. Very insightful. 
Can I get the next one? Absolutely. Be my guest. <laughs> this one actually really caught me off guard. So Peter Rayner from Christian Science Monitor, he gives the genuinely the best description of this movie I've ever heard. He says, quote, like a compost of Rocky Horror and Sweeney Todd, but without the floridity or the savage wit. I, you know, usually when I look for good reviews, I go to like the NY Times, Roger Ebert's website. I just genuinely didn't expect the Christian Science Monitor to have this insight for a horror movie. <laughs> right, right. Come back next episode. We're going to get uh, review quotes from the Amazon reviews section for each movie's DVD. No, we're not. Nope. That's a, that's a dangerous road, friend. That's well, right. We're reaching. <laughs> we really need quotes, guys. Um, but I know we kind of touched on this already, but... I want to, like, my experience with this film is actually a little weird. So I was really, in middle school specifically, into uh, the animation community on YouTube. And one of the animators I followed, she uploaded an animation of herself um, singing one of the songs from Repo. And it was Let the Monster Rise. And I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. And keep in mind, this was middle school. Like, these were cats singing. Like, it made no sense. But that is how I got introduced to this movie. Uh, so I looked up Repo. And at the time, you know, I didn't really have a sense of, like, good and bad. I was like, wow, this is so edgy. <laughs> it's a rock musical. And I was a musical theater kid. So, and horror is my favorite genre. So it just kind of mishmashed. And I remember I went up to you because we knew each other in middle school. And I was like, hey, you got to watch this movie. <laughs> and we were at, like, theater camp, something really lame. Yep. And I just handed it to you really sketchy like. So that's how <laughs> that's how I got into it. And then I spread the wealth of repo. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's you spread. liked it. Eventually. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I went, what? What did I just watch? This movie didn't make any sense. Parts of it are just <laughs> awful. I don't understand what even happened in this film. I hate it. Then I watched it again, and I went, what did I watch? Uh, there are some parts of this film that are just horrible. I still don't know what happened, but I think I like it. So it was kind of like a captive situation? Like you were, you just kind of had to keep watching it? I was like... intrigued because... Mm -hmm. The first run through, I had no idea what happened because Same. I'm still not entirely sure what happened. I've got my head cannon. Oh, so do I, but <laughs> we'll get into it. Um, so that's how we got introduced to this movie. Um, just a little background on this film, and most of this information comes from Julia Alexander from Polygon, and she does an excellent write up. So thank you, Julia Alexander. So essentially, the director, David Darren Bozeman, wanted to push boundaries in the horror genre, so he wrote this script for a film called The Desperate, but the studios were like, no, this is dumb, and they didn't buy it. But, you know, when you pitch your script to a studio, you never know who's going to see it. So Lee Winnell and James Wan from the Saw series were like, hey, do you want to direct Saw 2, 3, and 4? I assume that's how that conversation went. And he was like... Sure, I'll, I'll do that. So that's kind of what he became known for. And that's how he got his foot into the horror realm, at least on a larger scale than what he had been. But Bozeman actually had a pet project that he wanted to do. And it was a horror musical that he had already been showing in New York and L.A. So he said that he got this idea from a friend who was going through bankruptcy, which is a it's a theme in the film. You know, you're 
have you're in a debt and you have to pay it off. So he worked with the writer. Uh, Ter- I always botch his name, so I'm sorry, but it's Terrence Zundick. 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 Thank you. I can't. It's been years and I still can't do it. I'm so sorry. And I think. He's the um, he's one of the writers for the film, and he also plays one of the characters, Grave Robber. And they make the first iteration of the film, which was the neck, the necro. <laughs> ne- I'm so sorry. It's worth the wait. Uh, the necro not necro merchants debt. There we go. Sorry, I keep wanting to say necromancer, but it's yeah. And it was focused more around the grave robber evading the Repo Man. Where in Repo Man, it's obviously about the daughter of the repo man obviously (laughs) obviously um so he marketed this in a really weird way and i'm touching on this because i think it explains a lot um he made a 10 minute short film and he marketed it to the studios and they were all like no no i don't know about this and he was like no this is gonna work this is gonna this is gonna be good um he did eventually get in with lionsgate uh, but he had to finance 90% of the movie himself. Now, I won't say it's just himself, but he, like his crew. He, the, the Lionsgate did not give him the financial support that they really needed. Um, and so he also self-advertised. Like He would go on road shows, and he would also pass out flyers to college students. Like, I <laughs> Just think about this. You have to raise all the funds for your own film and handle all the promotion. It's You've got about the same odds of success as someone who's representing themselves in criminal court. Yeah. It's, if, you know, anyone making a movie out there, um, don't finance 90% of your movie because you're probably not going to make it back if you don't have that studio support. Is that pretty fair? That's pretty fair. Jeremy, how much much of a budget did this film have? All right, so in total, it was estimated that the film's budget was about... $8.5 $8.5 million. 90% financed without the studio. Keep that in mind. Keeping how... it. <laughs> Keeping it. Now, you know, usually to turn a profit, it's in the opening weekend, that's when you're going to make like the majority of your funds back. That's when you know if you've like kind of passed or failed. Right, right. And for most traditional films, you have to make back at least twice what the actual budget was for your film. Mm hmm. Because uh, that's usually what you have to spend for advertising. But with the college show tour, <laughs> uh, no one really knows how many, you know, how much was spent on all the gas money and all the gas station hot dogs that went into that. So it's a little rough to estimate how much more got added onto that $8.5 million, But uh, we'll see. Well, Jeremy, during opening weekend, how much did we make it back? Uh, we made it back, right? We covered the hot dogs. <laughs> that must have been a lot of hot dogs. <laughs> How much was it? Uh, we got $53,684. Well, I might as well just close it up right now. Cause, uh, yeah, this bombed. And I think it's fair to... I, it's, we should for, disclose that this didn't like... This isn't the type of film you saw on like billboards and it didn't go to all the theaters... Like, right, it didn't get a wide release. But it's that's still not an acceptable number <laughs> with all the money they sunk into it. Um, and where do we think that money went? Um, it's, you know, if you watch the film, it's real hard to figure out. Uh, did it go into the lighting? <laughs> 
Did they get some all-star editor? Was oh, it the no. set? Uh, the writers? Uh, every No, no, none of it. They spent nothing on those. They probably paid them in hot dogs. But <laughs> we got Paris Hilton. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Then there you go, kids. Um, so if you're making a movie, please spend money on the script, lighting, all that. Yeah, Paris Hilton's really kind of an afterthought. <laughs> really, she should have been. All right, let's actually get into the summary of this film a little bit. Now that we kind of know that this just bombed. Well, why did it bomb? So the film starts out with this massive company called Genco, And we are given clues that there has been like massive organ failure. And so Genco swooped in and they're like, we'll do organ transplants. And then it becomes like a fashion trend that people are just kind of getting surgeries because that's cool. And that sounds great. Yay. And Genco is making all of these organs by themselves. They're all yes. artificial products that are still owned by Genco. They're not letting you buy them. They're renting them out. Right. So you, when you get a transplant or surgery, you are in debt to Jinko. Um, so what happens when you don't pay back that debt? That's where the repo men come in. And the repo men are these big, scary dudes. And they basically they stalk you, hunt you down, and they tear out your organs and kill you and return them to the company. And the head of the company is Rati Largo, who should not, the guy playing him, has no business being in this movie I have no idea. Okay, Roddy Largo is played by Paul Servino, and he's in Goodfellas. I don't... How does that even happen? I digress. So Roddy Largo is the head of Co., and his whole thing is that he is dying of some unnamed illness. They call it it. <laughs> yeah. They... The doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, it's spreading fast. You know, it's that it's that terrible, fatal, uh, indescribable disease that every parent in films, especially Disney films, suffer from. See, when they say it, I just like to think that it's just some demonic clown that's possessing oh, him, killing him from the inside out. You know, it. <laughs> that would actually be uh, a lot more fun of a movie. See, because then we can slip in some uh, Tim Curry into this film, and you know, that could just that all we need to make this musical better. Anyway, so Roddy is trying to figure out what what which of his kids is going to take over Jinko and they're kind of they're freaks. Like Paris Hilton is Amber and she's addicted that's his daughter and she's addicted to surgery and Zydrate, which is the drug that they've developed to help people cope with the surgery. Uh, it's so expensive, highly addictive and very very highly abused. And you know, in some ways, this film is kind of ahead of its time. <laughs> and Amber actually started like the uh, the help support network for Zydrate, which is ironic since she abuses it in like every scene she's in. But that, I guess, is an important character point that isn't really elaborated on any further. Um, the other two kids, <laughs> Jeremy, I know you have strong feelings about them, so um, they just shouldn't be in the film. No, they shouldn't. Uh, it, the film would be a better product without them. But we've got, on one hand, we've got Luigi Largo, and uh, his big thing is that he's got a temper and he will literally just kill anyone yeah, for any reason whatsoever. Like at one point he wants coffee and someone gives him some and he goes, he spits it out on them and says, what is this? You know, rat pee? And then he just stabs them repeatedly. 
Yeah. That's his whole shtick. Then there's Pavi Largo. Pavi's weird. I don't like him. It's so, so bad. Bad, he, bad touch. His entire thing is that he likes to steal people's faces and, like, attach them to his own. It's... There's some weird backstory in here that they don't dive into. He's got this really scarred up, deformed Freddy Krueger face. We never see him actually do that, though. It's no. very strange. And he, he's the only one of them with, like, a weird accent. Yeah. I, I don't really know. But the chemistry between all of them is awful. Every scene they're in together, um, I, I like to fast forward through. Yeah. Honestly, the movie is better without that. They offer nothing in terms of plot. They actually detract from it. Uh, you know, Paris Hilton really is the shining one out of the three, and that is incredible, seeing as the only notable thing I can think of that she's been in his house of wax when she was impaled in the head. So, <laughs> I mean, thanks. Uh, but continuing on kind of with the plot, so those are the Largo, and they... The Largo? The Largo. The Largo family, and they own everything, basically, and people live in fear of them. So yeah, we they have hired guns that prowl the streets for them. It's kind of like a fascist state, only if it was owned by like one specific company <laughs> instead of like a dictator. It's very strange. Um, so we go to this family. We see Shiloh, and she. We were first introduced to her. She's sneaking into like a tomb of some sort, and she's obviously very into in- insect collecting and everything. Entomology. Yeah, that's the word that smart people would use. Um, and she goes out past curfew. She's not supposed to be out at all. She's essentially kept prisoner because she has a blood condition that we'll touch on later. Um, and this, she meets the grave robber, who's played by the writer of the film, Terrence Dunick. And uh, just for the record, Shiloh's played by Alexa Vega of Spy Kids fame. It's very odd. I, I, she sings a lot. It's very weird. Um, it is weird. She runs into the grave robber who's trying to steal Zydrate, which is, you know, the drug that is prevalent in this community, I guess. Because, like, it, you can get the raw Zydrate, the unprocessed stuff, by sticking a needle up a corpse's nose and extracting it from the brain. And it as, comes out glowing and blue, you know, like a decomposing brain. As he would say in the film, it's pure. <laughs> it's literally how he says it. It's clean. Um, so she's out there and she's like, I don't know what this is. I just wanted to get some bugs. And then, you know, since everyone, it, there's a sign that they show in the background. It's like everyone out past curfew will be shot on sight or like grave robbers will be shot on sight. So the grave robber, the actual grave robber is singing. He's doing his little musical theater thing. And then he just screams, alerting everyone, like, where they are. Like, there are literally people with guns, like, less than 10 yards away who just, for some reason, don't notice the singing man (laughs) until he decides to shout. Like, five seconds ago, the guards were in the frame. And then when he screams and he and Shiloh start to run, they're, like, nowhere (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Then, like, we cut to shots of them at, like, somewhere. We don't know where they are in relation to the characters, and, like, they're shining a flashlight at them. Where their guns went, I don't know. It's very convenient. But, yeah, that's where, that's where we're first introduced to the Grave Robber and Zydrate. At least Shiloh's formally introduced to Zydrate. And then the Grave Robber just kind of disappears and Shiloh goes home. <laughs> well, um... The Repo Man comes and 
he essentially saves Shiloh from being, you know, killed by them thinking that she's a grave robber or something. So we skip, we find out that the Repo Man is Shiloh's father. Shiloh doesn't know this. And his name is Nathan. And Nathan is played by the wonderful Anthony Stewart Head, who truly does steal the show. He, oh, he's a yeah. fabulous singer. Um, you can tell he's having a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, way more than I probably would have. And he was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I honestly didn't know that. And I've seen Buffy. I, I had to go back and look. It was very weird. Just go, wow, that's Giles. Wow. Yeah. No, he could sing like that. And I th- believe, don't quote me on this, that he was slated to play Jekyll and <laughs> Jekyll and Mr. He Hyde. He was. There was, a, there was going to be a filmic adaptation of the Broadway musical. He would have been perfect. Yeah. He actually would have been perfect. I mean, that's not a good musical either, but no. I, he would have been great at that. I mean, it. It would have been just as good as Repo was. It would have been better than Repo. Don't, don't even, <laughs> like, don't. Uh, so we get introduced to Nathan, and Nathan's the Repo Man, so he's the one killing everyone and getting the organs back for Gene Co. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Roddy contacts Shiloh and is like, hey, kid, come meet me. And she's like, okay. <laughs> so she does. She meets him, and he's basically like, Come to this Italian Renaissance festival with me. I'm dead serious. That's that's where they go. Um, and we're introduced to Blind Mag, who's kind of the diva of this. And she is played by the fabulous Sarah Brightman. And we all know that is where the budget for this film went. It was to get Sarah Brightman. She's Christine in Phantom of the Opera. The Christine. Why is she in this? Who knows? Her skill level is like miles above anybody else like you know everyone's singing like some talk singy rock musical and then sarah comes in with full-blown like i believe it's italian opera at one point yeah no they specific (laughs) just like in phantom of the opera when you know certain songs were written for sarah uh it seems like they wrote one song in repo specifically for her oh they definitely did yeah no they wrote the opera parts for brightman specifically um, moving ahead even more because there's just a lot of needless information in this film that really doesn't impact anything <laughs> um, after we meet Mag Mag later comes back to find Shiloh and is like actually I'm your godmother because Shiloh's mom is dead just so you know real dead like real dead <laughs> like Disney mom dead she died in childbirth yeah and she was supposed, uh, Mag was supposed to be the godmother, and she was told by Shiloh's mom that Shiloh had died. Shiloh's dad. Yeah, thank you. Because he's a doctor. Yeah. That's, that's why he's the repo man, because he knows how to make all those incisions. Essentially, Nathan, the repo man, thinks that he killed his wife. Yeah. And he could only save his daughter. So he's he's real. That's why he keeps his daughter locked up and everything. He's got some real issues that need ironing out, but never will be. Um, so a big fight arises between Nathan and Mag and Shiloh, and nothing's really resolved. <laughs> we find out that Mag is going to be preyed on by the Repo Man because her eyes were given to her by Jean Co. That's why they call her Blind Mag, because she was blind and now she's not. Uh, and this is where we're going to start to get into spoiler territory. This came out in 2008. If you haven't seen it, click away. Uh, but we're going to talk about the film in its entirety. Uh, 
everything accumulates in a st- opera at the end of the film. Um, and it's actually really funny on the DVD. Instead of like on the menu, instead of play, it says testify. Because there's a song where they're like, get up, get up, testify. And it sounds just like that, like with so little energy. And you know, like the background, people are like, testify. <laughs> it cracks me up. <laughs> um, Mag dies. She pokes her eyes out. Yeah, she sings her pretty Italian song, and then she just kind of stabs her own eyes out. She's like, I would rather be blind than work for Gene Co. And then they cut the wire that she's floating on because she's in a stage performance. And then she falls on a fence. She falls on a wrought iron fence and gets impaled. While her eyes have just been, like, poked out at the same time. Um, So at this opera... Roddy tells Shiloh, who still doesn't know that Nathan, her dad, is the Repo Man, like, if you kill the Repo Man, then you can have all of my money. And she's kind of like, I don't know what's happening here. (laughs) Well, in the end, everything, you know, comes out that, you know, Nathan is the Repo Man. Roddy's like, tell her. And he's like, I've been poisoning you. You've never been sick. And Shiloh's just kind of like, okay. Like, there's not really any uh, closure with that. No. Like, this entire film, it's been a big point that she's had this blood disease. That's why she can't go outside. That's why she's sneaking around. And then it comes out, and it's just kind of like, well, that sucks. <laughs> and uh, Nathan dies because Roddy shoots him, and then Roddy dies. And because then, he's sick. Yeah, because he's right there conveniently. And then uh, Shiloh doesn't get the money because she didn't kill him. And Amber takes over Jinko. That's the film. And if that sounded confusing, it's because it is. Um, There is a scene that was deleted from this film that contextualizes a large part of the film, and it's deleted. I truly don't understand. You want to try to explain it, Jeremy? All right, sure, sure. So according to uh, Roddy Largo, he has Shiloh's cure for her disease that she has, Uh, and he's got to help him out with all of his stuff for... Her to get it. But what we don't see is that the grave robber at some point sneaks into Shiloh's house, takes the corpse of her mother, <laughs> which is just in a display case in the wall, you know. As you a- do. As you do. It's a mood. Uh, and while she's being held at the opera performance, she meets up with the grave robber who's being held captive for some reason upside down. Yeah, we. he's just there. We don't get any anything about why is he hanging upside down where are we and then he instructs shiloh to extract you know raw zydrate from her own mother and to let that be her cure my favorite part is when he's singing he's like telling her you got to smack it you know smack the zydrate you got to take it and then he just looks at her and he's like you're beautiful and that's like never addressed again. It's very, never. it's so strange. Um, There's this whole thing in a n- separate deleted scene where the grave robber, they allude to it in some of the shots that are left in the film, but he's got a sexual relationship with Amber. Yes, it's alluded to a little bit, uh, but it's mostly, it's confusing because we can't tell if Amber's tripping out because she's taking the Zydrate. Or if it's it's not really important to be fair, but it no. just add, this film likes to be sexual just to be sexual, like a lot of horror movies do. Um, 
so when Amber's tripping, we see, you know, them on top of each other implying, you know, a sexual relationship, but it feels forced out of place and just, it's just, uh, that's the only thing I can think of. It's probably left over from the original script when the grave robber was the main character. He probably had some sort of relationship with uh, I, I the don't heiress even, of Gene Co. I think it's just sexual to be sexual, to be honest. Because even um, towards the end of the film, there's a scene. It's the same scene where they're like, "Get up, get up, testify!" All these women just get on stage and they start like, they get in a pile. It turns into slow motion for a minute, and they all start moaning and like grinding on each other, and then it just. Ends. And we don't mean slow motion like they shot in slow motion. No. <laughs> we mean they just shot the scene and then played it at half speed. Yeah, they put a filter on it afterwards. It, And it's just... And not to mention everyone during that scene, like a couple of people just randomly stand up and talk about what organs they got from Gene Co. One yep. guy's like, I got my liver replaced. Then some woman comes up and she just takes off her top and she goes, I got implants. Yeah, it's she's like, I look smashing on live TV. So this film really does like uh, it, it falls into that dumb horror trope of just like sexual for no reason. But it feels insanely out of place here because like people are dying left and right. It, the film has a tonal problem, a massive tonal problem in that it doesn't know if it's trying to be funny, if it's trying to be serious. So you'll get a scene where someone's just stabbed right there and then you see breasts. And it's like, okay. And then you find out Nathan's been poisoning his daughter. Nothing happens. We get some sad music, but then right, like immediately after, there's like an empowering song. So it's just all over the place. Like there's, <laughs> there's nothing coherent about the tone at all. It, the Mickey Mousing is something I wanted to touch on. So Mickey oh. Mousing is a term in audio work, especially for film. The best way to describe it is, you know, in older cartoons, like Mickey would, you know, smash somebody in the head with a pan or something. And, it and would, you'd conk. Yeah, like conk or the boing boing sound effect. This, like, there are scenes where, say, Nathan is killing a person and he's, like, cutting them up and you'll get the whoop sound effects. Or, like, it'll just be super exaggerated, this little, like... Yeah, it's it's very... it's. I think it's trying to be funny purposefully uh, because in one scene specifically, Thankless Job is the name of the song. Naven's like, it's a thankless job. And he's just kind of going crazy back and forth. Like, he's that's he's, where he's having fun. He's someone. Like, he bows to his victim and everything. So that might be a choice, but it's very inconsistent. That happens in other scenes as well. Like in the 11th hour song at the opera tonight where all the characters have their piece, Nathan's on his way to go murder people at the opera and as he's killing Co employees, we hear these weird sounds while he's stabbing people, throwing his knives. Yeah, it's not good. Mickey Mousing can be used effectively, but here it was used for no reason. Maybe don't use it in your horror movie. You, I'm not even going to go that far. I think if it was written, if you just have to know what you want your scene to be. And I don't think they do. Uh, that I'm going to talk about Mark It Up. <laughs> no, can we not? Oh, but we are. So in the, it's a musical. 
Uh, there are 22 songs in the soundtrack, unless you count like the deluxe edition with 38 tracks. And we've talked about the songs a little bit. It's a, it's kind of like an operetta sort of deal. So most of the things that people say are sung with only a couple of spoken lines right. throughout. You know, it's kind of like Les Mis in that way. But uh, yeah, t- there's only about 20 or so primary tracks. It's relatively standard for what I would call a musical. Yeah. There are a lot of like reprises and stuff, the little, yeah, light motifs that come back occasionally. But one song in particular is way worse than the rest. It comes up towards the beginning of the movie and involves the kids that we talked about that we all hate. Um, all the Largos. The, <laughs> the Amber, Pavi, and Luigi. And I'm going to read it here. I'm sure it's going to have to be censored, but uh, it starts off with Amber going, Where the f is dad, brothers? And Luigi says, he left me in charge, sister. I don't take lip from a slut. And then Amber says, C-. and then Poppy's like, my brother and sister should. F-. And I hope that gave you an idea of this song. And I also want to highlight the song specifically because I, I have difficulty even referring to it as a song because there is no rhythm. Um, it really, Amber leaves pretty quickly and it becomes a Luigi and Poppy song. And they kind of just circle each other and talk, sing. And they do not harmonize. They don't Nothing. have rhythm. There's no beat. There's a lot of Mickey Mousing in the song. Um, so much. Like, think of, like, the worst movie you've seen where the characters have, where the actors have absolutely no chemistry with each other. Now imagine that in song form. Yeah. Like, with singing voices that just don't mix. Like, Pavi sings in this weird, affected falsetto voice and Luigi just kind of goes full throat you know just throwing out the belting and it it doesn't mix at all it's awful you can tell they're desperately trying to make you laugh like but it's not working at all that's why they keep using the Mickey Mousing effects because they're like laugh please laugh do it but like they're trying to be somewhat ironic like they're they're literally killing a girl right there as they're just arguing about who's going to inherit Jean Co. And she's like writhing on the floor, like, oh, I'm dying. And they're just kind of singing. And it's supposed to be funny, but it, it just comes off. It's boring, first off. And it's most, it's, it's really never mentioned again. We really don't see them fighting. It's literally just character development for Quote, character development. It's character development that we will see developed in the exact to the exact same extent in like several other places in the film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. Let's talk about you know what we've been really slamming on this movie. There are some things that I genuinely like about it, especially in the music. Uh one of the songs that two songs I'll highlight because they're both by Nathan. Uh Anthony Stewart Head is actually a really great singer, at least in my opinion. Um he's, he's wonderful. Uh both his character songs Legal Assassin and Night Surgeon, I think they get the job done perfectly well. They explain his character. They tell me everything I need to know about him being upset about his wife dying, and that's why he's so protective about Shiloh. And the Night Surgeon is just him going, I don't want to kill Mag because she's my friend, my wife's friend. Uh, and then it's the process of Roddy Largo convincing him to get back into the killing game and for him. And what's really great about Anthony Stewart Head is that he actually emotes far better than anybody else in the film. So when he's, you can actually see him struggling with himself and then ultimately giving in to killing the person right in front of him as he's like 
I remember how it feels to kill people and it feels great and it's like a catharsis for him. But even but even at the end, it's inconsistent because we go for this entire scene we get to see his evil side and he's just like, I won't do it. Right, right. And it's weird because like 20 minutes earlier, we saw him kill a guy. Well, no, we this, see him kill several people at the beginning of the film. Well, to be fair, this is it's not that he doesn't want to kill. It's that he doesn't want to kill Mag specifically. Right, right. Yeah, so but I mean... Another credit to Anthony Stewart Head's performance is he kind of does this Jekyll and Hyde thing with his mm-hmm. voice, where whenever he's Nathan, he talks a little bit higher in his register, he takes out the bass, and he just kind of talks like this. Then when he gets into the Repo Man, he, like, growls as he talks, especially yeah. in songs like Mark It Up and in... Night, not in Market Up, but uh, Thankless Job and Night Surgeon. If we don't talk about Market Up anymore, it's no. done. Yeah, no, it. I think it's really cool. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. It the show, the whole film is worth watching just for his performance alone. Uh, Sarah his Brightman, Sarah, Sarah Brightman too. She, I, as much as I love <laughs> Nathan's character, um, Sarah Brightman has way more skill than anybody else in this film. It's kind of insane, especially since they market this as an opera of some sort. I'd be willing to say that they're probably on equal footing. I'd say that she's got more range, but for the rock opera thing, I think Anthony Stewart Head is a little bit better equipped for some of the well. They don't really give her tracks. They don't really give her much of a rock. So I guess like they are specialized in different areas. I I like them both. Like there's one or two points in the film where Mag is given some like passing sing dialogue. Yeah. And you can tell that her voice is like just not suited for this at all. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Um, Speaking about Mag as well, we talked about it briefly, but the Italian song they give her, Chromagia, it's beautiful. (laughs) I absolutely love it. I, it's very odd in this film. Um, the entire time we're doing like a rock opera, then we have this operetta, Italian, beautiful soprano piece. Like, it's so weird. We've got this rock opera, and on one end, we've got Mark It Up, this like weird talk, singy, Mickey Mousey mess. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, towards the end of the film, we've got this song, Chromagia. Uh, that's this metaphoric song where mag is a bird and it's just you'll you'll get it once you learn the italian but <laughs> uh that's what i that's also what i mean about the tonal issue like even the songs they flip back and forth between genre but not in an organic way so it just feels very choppy like when you'll suddenly go from like this opera to like talk singy to whatever mark it up was it's just a disappointment. That's I, what it was. It'd be great. The, the flow would have really benefited this film, especially the music, because there are some we're highlighting songs that we like. There are some good songs in here. Um, one more that I want to highlight, and it's not necessarily because I think it's good, but I think it's interesting. Seventeen was shot live because they wanted to get um, they wanted to emulate a live rock concert of it being messy. 17 is the song where Shiloh finally sticks up to her dad and she's like, I'm 17, I can do what I want. And Nathan just slaps her in the face at the end. He's like, no, not in my house. But that one, I thought it was interesting that they shot that live. <laughs> yeah, and the fun thing about that one was it had a uh, guest musician yeah. there. They got Joan Jett. <laughs> Like, to play the guitar? <laughs> I, I'm honestly... how I want to know how they, like, 
there's no way they just asked them to do this. So, I mean, I guess they could have paid them, but how did they market this to them? Like, how did they? Get... <laughs> it's so weird. They I'm baffled. Like, they were like, look, guys, we've got the backing of the people who made Saw. <laughs> That's true. I mean, Saw 2, 3 and 4. Sarah Brightman's going to be in it. Don't you want to be in it, Joan? <laughs> we've got Alexa Vega. We got the dude from Goodfellas. <laughs> Paris Hilton's here. Right, right. Join the party. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Um, but yeah, Joan Jett's five-second cameo aside, it's, it's an interesting interesting single. For If I had to highlight one, I'd do Needle Through a Bug. The do, that's a deleted song. Right, right. You can only find that one if you have the Blu-ray copy of the film or if you have... YouTube? Uh, you know, YouTube. <laughs> yeah. And that's but, the song we were talking about that um, added much-needed context to the film. Um, also the much-needed creepiness of the, you're beautiful. Yes, that is the song where Grave Robbers is strung up without context. <laughs> I, that It's an interesting song. I wouldn't say I necessarily like it. it but I, I think it's essential for a repo. It's essential to get anywhere near understanding what actually happens. Uh, yeah, I guess that is fair. That's, we haven't really talked about it, but the plot doesn't make sense. Oh, I thought we touched on that like, kind we, of... We kind of touched on it more of like our personal opinion, but like if you actually just watch the film from beginning to end... It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. There's some critical information missing in the rising action. Okay, uh, we were noticing this earlier. Shiloh constantly sneaks out. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. She constantly sneaks out. We see Nathan lock the door. She's sneaking back in later. And she goes back into her room. Nathan comes in later and unlocks the door. Shiloh doesn't have a key. How no. did she get in and out? The very first thing we see of Shiloh in the entire film is her having snuck out of her room. But then when we see her in her room for the first time, Nathan locks her in. Yeah. And she tries opening the door and it's locked shut. And she just kind of takes that locked door as a sign that she should give up. So so how has she been? I guess she's climbing out <laughs> her window. I guess. But there's like patrol people around. It's just, it, That seems like a minor issue. But... Those types of things build up. When you have, without the deleted scene there, we don't know why it's important that Shiloh is even, we don't, Shiloh, that's where she learns that there's a cure. Or that's where we find out what the cure is, because in the film, Roddy says, I'll get you your cure, but then in the regular cut of the film, she never takes anything, she never does anything, and then she gets on stage. There's no point. She's just magically cured, and he says, there, you've got your cure, and it's just like, <laughs> what? what? Withdrawal? And it's also interesting, too, because even with that scene in the film, if you left it, it also contradicts itself. <laughs> because we find out that Shiloh is being poisoned by her dad, so there is not a cure. Right, right. Because every time <laughs> he's got this strict schedule set up where he, you know, he'll call her up on their holographic watch phones. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so funny. They're trying to be futuristic. So they have like, they have a watch and like the image of the person you're talking to pops up. But we have like FaceTime now. So it looks so like... It, like... They've also <laughs> only got 
$8.5 million. So it's not like <laughs> a video of the person. It's just a holographic bust of their head. It's so It just weird. spins around. It really shows uh, <laughs> they could not put money into environment or world building. No. But he calls her regularly and is like, it's time to take your medicine. And the implication is that he puts poison in her medicine. Yep. So what is there to cure? And they they make very sure, even from the beginning of the film, that we know something's up with the medicine. They focus, they do a close-up shot of him putting stuff in the medicine. They bring it up constantly. This is, They want this to be a focal point. But it's no matter how you spin it, it doesn't make sense. Either you're missing vital information that was cut from the film, or if you put it back, they contradict themselves later. So this massive plot point that's been building up doesn't have any real resolution or real purpose in the film. I guess you can argue it builds Shiloh's character. She kind of resolves herself to live life to the fullest after her father dies, but that could have happened without that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just kind of cut the scene where Shiloh takes, you know, raw street drugs, (laughs) and that's the solution to all of her problems. So, I mean, I get it. I want to talk briefly about the overall aesthetic of this film. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about the editing. I noticed this, that once you see it in this film, you cannot unsee it. Um, I'll try to describe this the best way I can. So if you have a shot, they'll make jump cuts in the shot of like one jump cut in like two seconds, another one in a second of another angle of the same shot, and then another one, maybe they've taken a step or two. So you have this, this shot with like three cuts in it, and that lasts like maybe five seconds that just cuts to extremely similar shots. And they do this constantly throughout the film. And it is it adds speed to the film that for no reason that just makes you feel disoriented. It I think they wanted it to be a stylistic choice, but it comes off as sloppy. Um, I think it was a result of limited camera work. Like they didn't have enough. They could have just to... kept the camera from that shot. They should have kept the camera <laughs> from the shot. Use the but master shot. Some, there are so many times where, you know, there's some action going on on screen and they'll cut to one shot and then literally less than a second later, they'll cut away from that shot and it's just, you get whiplash. Yeah, it's not good. And going off of editing, lighting is bad. It looks drab the entire film. Um, they're trying to go for this gothic aesthetic. Um, so Alexa Vega's character and Alexa Vega's character is like pale. Yes. Like that's what we get because she's a shut in. And that makes sense. Grave Robbers got like some white <laughs> face paint. Like his skin is just like painted white. Yeah, it's strange. Mag is kind of fair skinned as well. But every shot with Shiloh and Grave Robber, because he takes her around town for a while. Weird little side part of the plot. But in the shots where they're together, they always look super washed out. Yeah, I. it's strange. For a Grave Robber, I thought they were kind of going like the face paint, like Kiss-esque look. That's I don't, a good way to describe it. It doesn't really make sense. And then there are scenes where it goes from goth to punk aesthetic, specifically when they're in like the underground drug area. Um, I actually think that works a little better because the poor lighting fits 
<laughs> they have bad lighting uh, and they can't really hide it in other scenes. But here, the yellow makes everything look grimy and gross, like how an underground would look. So I think that worked out well, personally. And yeah. the washed out tone, it just looks unappealing. And that's how it's supposed it, to be. It's kind of a mood for a drug den. Um, something else. Uh, I don't know if I call this choreography. What's called blocking. Um, if you just watch, my advice after you've seen a movie a few times is watch it, but don't watch the main characters. Watch what's going on in the background because you will always learn something fascinating about a movie. I've seen this movie like 20 times and I watched it recently and I just focused on the people in the back. First off, I don't know if they weren't given direction. There are times where like there are women in the back. They'll just like grab somebody and like pull themselves close to them very sexually, but like nothing like completely unmotivated <laughs> like roddy will be like hey i'm announcing this new thing okay like <laughs> i i don't really understand how that's a sexual thing but all right like at a press conference he's got you know female nurses groping his children on stage yeah it's it's very strange and then later like at that big opera um there, you, the people at the forefront are kind of into it, but if you look in the background, there are people that are just kind of standing around clapping. Uh, you want it was supposed to be like this huge event, but there might be like 30, 40 people in that room. You can really tell the budget; they couldn't get extras. Um, they, it just, it looks like there are a lot of people that weren't given a lot of direction. Like they got, they had to go through so much time to go through some like cheap makeup because, again, not to say that like the makeup necessarily looks bad but just this wasn't a super high budget film yeah but you know so i'm not trying to like diss on them but they had to go through this like weird wardrobe process hair makeup because the wardrobes and all this are trying to be all futury it's like future goth-esque yeah it it the whole aesthetic thing doesn't work because there's a bunch of people that are like super bougie and rich yep but there's like seven people who are like drug addicts so like there's no like economy of scale for this classism i'll say it again tonal problem even in the clothing it's it's a style problem but it's the same thing really as we zoom into the world like the city is like encased in a rings and rings of mass graves yes because you know the organ failure but then that raises the question there's so many questions. Yeah, let's talk film. about that briefly because the film sets up that the reason Gene Co. is so prominent is because there was a massive organ failure. We are given that information in like the first two minutes of the film. We don't get any context about that history. And that sounds infinitely more interesting than the events that happened in this film. Absolutely more interesting. Um, you see the world around this terrible CGI world around behind you. And you just see death and destruction and like dark colors and... I want to see like how people are living here. Right, right. Uh, because the film takes place in 2057. Uh, <laughs> Someone know, was some born reason. in like 2011. It's very strange. <laughs> it, it makes you feel like so an adult old. that would be like 40. Right, right. I just I feel so old watching this film. <laughs> uh, but it takes place in 2057. They have a flashback to 17 years ago. And we still see people are getting sick from this. Yeah. So what happened? Yeah, I need some much needed context here. <laughs> I think I think they thought that the characters they had were just so interesting that they could use it as set dressing um, and not like the A plot. But really, 
um, hi, massive organ failures, or I don't know, it could have worked if the writing was stronger, not even the writing, just the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's so sad because I think there is an idea here that could be really interesting. Super interesting. I just think it needs more. It definitely needs to be workshop more and it needs an actual, um, I need studio interference. <laughs> yeah. We've got this corporate fascist world with this weird paramilitary force being deployed by uh, Roddy Largo, but he's still beholden to the laws of Congress because in the beginning they emphasize Roddy Largo. He lobbied Congress to pass a bill yeah. and now organ repossessions are legal. And the press you see in the newspapers, they're like making hits at him. So it's not like he owns everything. Right, but he's still allowed to just murder people in cold <laughs> blood and... I guess it's kind of like the mob. Like, you know they're doing bad things, or the Yakuza, but, like, the government just kind of turns a blind eye. I guess. I think that, that kind of makes sense, too, because the people are dying ref- left and right, and they have at least somewhat of a cure, then I'm, what are you going to do? Sure. I... It's... Look, that's only a tiny explanation. It's still a mess. Oh, still a big beautiful mess one more question about just the overall look and feel of the film something that even the first time i watched it that kind of drew me out was the comics we haven't talked about that yet so in between certain scenes they just they freeze frame and then it turns into a comic strip and these aren't good it's actually very surreal because um when we're first really introduced to nathan as a father figure, not the Repo Man, they freeze frame on him, it goes into his backstory, and then the song Legal Assassin right after tells us literally everything that the comic strip just told us. And during the comic strip, there's like no voices. It just goes from panel to panel, telling you all this information very sequentially, you know, with just some nice background music going on. No, no big deal. Then Legal Assassin comes on, and through the lyrics of the song and the cinematography, we actually get to see all that they showed us in the comics happen in the film. And you just go, wait. So <laughs> they inserted this unnecessary comic to tell us information that they were literally going to tell us immediately after the comic is over. But they had to cut out a song because it didn't fit? Yeah, I I honestly can't think of an explanation. I My first thought was maybe padding for time, but then why would they get rid of the song? Right, like you would think that they could just, since it's not a particularly like detailed comic with the art style and everything, that they could just re- remake that to explain the biggest plot hole in the film about Shiloh's cure and the Zydrate and kidnapping her mom's body and all that stuff. I would be fine with the comic strips if it gave us new information and if they were done in a, in a dynamic way. The way they are in the film, they feel very still and lifeless. Um, like, they move, like, sometimes there's, like, pans and zooms, but that's really not enough. Um, they, they just feel... It's like a bathroom break. just pops up <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the film. You know, that's... You know, you know, once the comic pops up, you've got a solid minute or two that you can spend getting up, you know, stretching, refilling the popcorn. Yeah, the song right after will tell you everything. (laughs) It's all good. Yeah, I, again, I keep saying it, but 
just a tonal problem. They didn't know what they wanted this film to really be. I think they were a little too ambitious. I think they had these visions. <laughs> You're looking what? at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's they wanted to make this large scale that scale world, but they they didn't. So it's just like the CGI'd mess and oh, what am I miss? Like, what happened here? All the music went. All the. All the music went into the money, guys. That's just... So, here's a question for you. Would this have been better strictly as a stage play? Yes. I agree. If we could keep the same cast, especially. I'm going to... My dream is for Shiloh. (laughs) Shiloh should be Amy Lee. (laughs) That's my hot take. It would be perfect. Sarah Brightman and Amy Lee. It's not even that Alexa Vega is necessarily bad as a singer, uh, but as an actress, she's very boring in this film. Yeah. I vote Amy Lee. I have no idea if Amy Lee's a good actress, Who but knows? I think she perfectly fits the aesthetic of this film. If not, let's go Lady Gaga, you know? <laughs> I actually think Lady Gaga would be really fun in this film. Yeah, yeah. She would fit right in. But um, I just, because they tried to do so much with world building and everything, being limited in a good way by the stage format i think would really benefit them because they would have to think of ways to transition songs more organically they wouldn't try to do all the cgi stuff that didn't add anything just kind of takes you out of the experience they can't do the comic thing yeah yeah no they would have to be more sparing with the songs and they would also have to elaborate on some yeah, and I think that really would benefit. There's some, there's good stuff here. It's just not being showcased in the best way. Right, and the reason we bring that up is because the 2008 film was based on the 2002 stage musical. Yep. And that was shown live. What happened? You know, I, I don't know. What got lost in translation? I just, I think this was just too ambitious. I'll keep saying it. Um, I really. I like that they tried. That sounds so pandering. Uh, this is definitely a unique idea, a rock horror movie, a uh, rock horror musical movie. but uh, Not Rocky Horror musical movie. So that's what it kind of became in terms of cult status. And actually, talking on your point from earlier, um, in an interview, Alexa Vega actually said that from the beginning, it was planned that this would be a three-part series, so there would be a prequel and a sequel. So we might have gotten more elaboration on the world, but they don't actually, well, obviously they didn't do well in theaters and a cult status isn't necessarily enough to get things going. So they don't really have the means to do that or the rights to do it. So what they did do is the director was like, we're going to make something else. And they made The Devil's Carnival. And we're not going to go too in depth with that, but I know you've seen it. I've seen bits of it it i i honestly don't know too much about it um i w- most of the cast is still there alexa vega's there i don't think paris hilton's in it though uh no but paul sorvino from goodfellas is still in there uh the guys who played luigi and pavi are still there and we needed that it's not related to repo um he just wanted to make a story using the same people. I guess he really liked that cast. So we, as of right now, there is no plans for a sequel or a prequel, um, which is a shame, but it does look like they're continuing on with different projects, though I don't think, I don't, I think it's kind of a canceled thing at this point, The Devil's Carnival. 
Uh, yeah, they. It was a three-parter, and looking on their Wikipedia they page, two, they got right? they got the first one out. And as of June 2014, production of The Devil's Carnival episode two has officially begun, <laughs> and most of the cast is anticipating to return. So don't hold your breath, there, folks. Uh, no. So just and just like in Repo with. My song that I wanted to highlight, Needle Through a Bug, the best song in The Devil's Carnival, was also a deleted scene. <laughs> Stop deleting my, things, guys. In all my dreams, I drown. Ah, that sounds fun. It's a, you know what? It's the best they've got. They tried. <laughs> um, so should we, is it, is it mean to say maybe he should stick with Saw? <laughs> you know, seeing how Saw's shook out oh come on we can't make an (laughs) come on i i like this movie it's it's bad it is a bad movie it is badly made it is narratively uh bereft of sense (laughs) i was trying to think of a nice like a nice way to put it um it's i but i would recommend it um, I think it is such a unique experience, especially if you like horror movies. You won't see anything else like it. Especially if you like musicals. If you like musicals, you absolutely need to watch this. Again, I can't say that the music is stellar, um, but it's interesting. And I I think given another chance, I would like to see this remade someday. Right. Yeah. With a new script. Definitely That's the major new thing. script. New script. We'll write some new songs for it while we're here. <laughs> but yeah, that could work. It could definitely work. Are there any final thoughts you want to give to this lovely audience about this film? Um, I bet it would be fun to watch drunk with friends. <laughs> like, this seems like it would be a good party film. Like, it's not one of those so bad it's good films. It's nah. got some parts of it that are really good but then there are some parts of it that make you just go, I guess those good parts were just a fluke. I will say I have never really been bored watching this film. I mute it usually for Mark It Up and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Skip, just hit next chapter once you get to Mark It Up. But aside from that, pretty solid. So go give it a shot. Maybe you'll be in the same camp as us of liking it, but acknowledging that, hey, maybe this isn't the most well-made of films. But I would like to see what this group of people could do in the future. And hopefully we'll see Repo again. So thank you for joining me. This has been Emily Rubin. And Jeremy Rogers. And thank you for listening to Input 2. You can read all of our content at ByteBSU.com and TheBallStateDaily.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at ByteBSU. This entire month, we'll be doing a bunch of Halloween content. Here on Input 2, we'll be covering horror movies the entire month. So stay tuned and keep watching movies.